A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Chip Conley. Thanks for listening. Your story of going down there, buying the home, renovating, you know, having the epiphany with the run on the beach, it, it just sounds so magical or divinely inspired. And the fact that I know that many people are looking for this now, obviously, you know that too. But one, one thing that your work has really, you know, given me some new insight into is this idea of what I would say like the downside or the pitfalls related to retirement and how, you know, I've, somebody once suggested to me that when we retire, assuming we do, that we either retire away from something or toward something and that it's critically different, which it is. And you pointed me to some research that talks about retirement accelerating mortality rates. And will you just talk about what is the, like, how do you, cause I get what you're saying. There's this thing, middle essence, we're preparing people to live longer, to live better, you know, that kind of thing. But maybe this is a uh, how. Mm. So let's first go to, go to the science um, and the white papers. And what they show is that you do increase your mortality rate if you um, choose to retire, which is bizarre because in many ways you could think that when retirement was created in the most formal way in the 1930s with social security, et cetera, it was created with the idea that actually it was helping people live longer lives because generally people were doing physical labor. Um, and you know, at some point in your 60s, you wear out. A lot of people wear out. So actually what happens uh, you know, to get into the science is that two or three things really happen. Number one is you lose your sense of purpose. This is, I'm talking generally here, or I'm talking about in situations where someone does you know, die uh, faster be, because of this. So you lose your sense of purpose because generally work is uh, the number one purpose generator in most people's lives beyond your family. And so, you know, family first, work is second when it comes to your sense of purpose in life. All of a sudden that's gone away and you don't actually necessarily have something in its place, which is a weird thing. We don't really have a cultural way of saying to people with rites of passage in midlife, what's the thing you're moving toward? Um, secondly, community. This is underappreciated, and I think is becoming even more in an era of you know you know mass quarantine, self quarantines. Um, yeah, I think, and, people, and even before that, Chip, sorry to jump in here, but yeah, even before yeah. that, um, the fact that I know there's some health, you know, like public health officials that are now moving toward declaring loneliness an epidemic. Well, in in the UK, there's actually a minister of loneliness uh, as of 2018 because of. Uh, yes. So tons and tons of evidence on this one as well. So you retire, you lose your sense of your purpose. You retire, you lose your sense of community often. 
And the third one, which is a little bit has a little bit less relevance, but it's still moderately relevant, is you lose your discipline and your sense of structure to your life. Oh, that's huge. That's, and that's yeah. a, that one can be huge. It sort of varies on the person, because uh, the other two actually are are more consistent throughout. This one sort of varies a little bit. And and why is it very well? Some people then often I would just say. The truth is, it's usually all three. <laughs> so if someone's missing it on one, they're usually missing it on all three. And if someone has it on one, they might have it on all three. Because when you actually have some purpose community in your post-retirement life, you often have structure. And that's why I, that's why I think of this one, the structure. I don't think structure just for the sake of structure is going to solve anything. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to watch, you know, the next for the next 14 hours TV in this structure. I don't think that necessarily solves anything, but but purpose and community can create structure. So I, I think that that's the third one to be just aware of. And what what happens without structure? Frankly, you know, sometimes people fall into behaviors, whether it's drinking or other or you know, being sedentary, not exercising. Etc. That actually work against their health. So you know that's that's the story on retirement. So you know I think what we need to do, and especially in an era where people are going to live longer, like it's great to have all this extra longevity, but how the hell am I going to pay for it? And so that means people need to, by choice or necessity, consider that they may live longer. I'm sorry, that they may work longer, and and try to find a way to feel positively about that. Because Becca Levy from Yale has shown that. If you can have a positive perspective on aging and move from a neutral or a negative perspective, you actually add seven and a half years to your life. That's amazing. All things considered. I mean, that, that, that's more years than quitting smoking, isn't it? Even more than quitting smoking, more than actually t- taking up exercise in midlife. So more than being so, married, which I was surprised to learn can add five years to someone's life. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It's a, so, so in some ways, and, and Becca, we're now, you know, I, I, like for me, I'm just in, in seventh heaven uh, because all these academics who have done great work, but a lot of their work isn't very public. I mean, in the sense that it hasn't hit pop culture. Um, they're sort of excited because, you know, my book's done well and, and I do a lot of speaking and, you know, a lot of, lots of podcasts like this. And so their work's getting out there. And Becca now has just said, listen, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about coming to the Modern Elder Academy and, and teaching because I, in many ways, we're the first institution in the world that actually has been dedicated to her research, which is basically to say, how do you help people shift their mindset to a positive perspective on aging? We're making aging aspirational. That That's fantastic. And your question too about... What if aging wasn't about growing old, but about growing whole? I, I just think that's such a fantastic question. And toward the end of your book of Wisdom at Work, when you write that being a modern elder is all about reciprocity, giving and receiving, teaching yeah. and learning, speaking and listening, that everyone gets older, but not everyone gets elder. The first just happens if you're lucky and healthy. But this idea is... In some ways, I'm, I love that about growing whole. You know, it's a both and and yeah. a rounding out. There's something about that that I can see why that would be something to look forward to. Where previously, if I'm honest, my view of getting older, getting old, was decrepitude, decay, breakdown, you know, yeah. slowing down and all of this. Not too long ago, I read something in one of my teachers, um, Yogananda, actually suggested that it is possible to mature and even reach the point of death 
while still maintaining complete function in old age. And it was like, I had never even occurred to me, you know, that (laughs) that we could avoid disease and not that most people, I know many people deal with that, but anyway, it wasn't even a possibility. And your work is really kind of reinforcing that for me and, and I'm grateful for it. Thank you. Well, I think in many ways, society has defined age as having one playing field, uh, not multiple playing fields. And the playing field has been our body and our beauty and our brawn. You know, let's let's give all three of those together. Uh, And then there's the brain one, another B. But it sort of looked at the brain from the perspective of, you know, memory and, and quick recall. And what it's missed is that there is there are other playing fields. There's the playing field of the mind. Uh, which is the brain, but also beyond that. And it's, it's sort of like this idea of emotional intelligence that comes from that and the idea of holistic thinking that gets better with age. And then there's the big one from my perspective, which is the soul, the playing field of the soul. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, yes, there are young people who have old souls. Absolutely. In fact, there are young people who are wise. Absolutely. Wisdom is not just, you know, something that you ha- get when you get older. You actually, as you said just a moment ago, quoting my book, you, everybody gets older if we're lucky, but, you know, some of us get elder. And what that means is you actually cultivate and harvest your wisdom. If, if wisdom is about pattern recognition, the longer you've been on the planet, the more patterns you've seen and are able to recognize if you start learning how to cultivate and harvest those that pattern recognition or that wisdom you have more to offer yourself and society yeah. and that is really what is core to what we do at the modern elder academy is help people learn the tools to do that in their life more effectively and that is why the community around this has, has grown so rampantly because there are a lot of people who are thirsty for understanding how do you cultivate and harvest wisdom. And they're all not all, the part that's been surprising, Brian, is I thought it was just going to be, you know, I, we pretty much said initially um, the program is just for people 45 to 65. And that because that was how we define midlife. And as you know, what I said earlier today was 35 to 75 is my new definition of midlife. But mm-hmm. we've had people from 30 to 88 come to the program. And in fact, 25% of the people who've come are outside of the 45 to 65 window, equally split with those who are younger, like you, um, and those people who are older than 65, uh, including the 88-year-old who came who just said, listen, she said, I still have 10 or 15 years ahead of me. I'm not elderly yet. And and she's not physically. She's like stunningly in shape. That's great. Um, but what was she was really interested in is how, how does she cultivate and harvest her wisdom and accelerate that process because she does see that it's the time of her life when she's leaving her legacy and how can she do that even more effectively? Yeah. Well, I know the quality of our lives is directly related to the questions we ask. And these are fantastic questions. And I've been on your website and in your book, you have some of them as well. But I realize, you know, any one of these questions really asked you know, with honesty and courage could, could change the trajectory of our life. So for people who want to experience that, I understand that these are residential programs. So they would actually come down to Baja, spend time at this beautiful, do you call it a resort? This beautiful facility you've created? No, we call it, we, 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 we call it a retreat, but I mean, we really call it a a wisdom school, a midlife Mm. wisdom school. So people, people can find out about that online at modernelderacademy.com. Is that right? Yep. Dot com and dot org because we are a social enterprise. So one of the things that I think people really need to know is like for me, I've been lucky enough to be a for-profit entrepreneur and be successful at Joie de Vivre and then at, at, with Airbnb. 
but I totally now on, in the mode of being a social entrepreneur. So one of the things that's important to me is I think wisdom is not taught, it's shared. And so what we really believe strongly in is the idea of a of socioeconomic diversity within our cohorts that are usually on average 18 people. And so what that means is that over 50% of the people who come here are on some form of scholarship we give them. So we give about a million and a half dollars a year uh, in scholarships to people, all of which is funded by, by us. And what that's great is it means that we've closed for the pandemic for a few weeks for good reason, uh, for public health reasons, and we'll continue to be closed if, if we have to be. But in our last cohort, we had a union st- steelworker who's 60 years old wow. in the cohort, along with a physical therapist, a nurse, an elementary school teacher, and a social worker. But we also had a former CEO of a tech company. We had a you know, best-selling author. We had a software engineer uh, from Silicon Valley. So that, that diversity is part of what's interesting because when people are going through transition, we, we talked about this being MEA is about you know, navigating midlife transitions. Whether your tra- transition is a career one or whether it's going through menopause or an empty nest syndrome or being in the sandwich generation where you have both you're taking care of your parents later in life, but you're also taking care of your kids, or it's a, a medical diagnosis or a divorce. There are people going through all kinds of transitions, and and there's something common about transition, which is it tends to create anxiety in one's life. And there's some great lessons we can have from each other. So creating a, a conversation within the cohort of people who are very diverse is part of the reason we really are excited by people who can come, but they normally might think, I can't afford that. Well, you probably can. And in fact, especially in the next couple, you know, few months, if you lose your job because of this economic downturn, as long as you can get yourself down here, we have three levels of scholarship of, you know, of, of how you could join us. That is so great. I haven't seen that with any other program quite the way you've structured it. And that, that's yeah. very generous. So yeah, good, good for you. Okay, with your permission, I want to transition our conversation to the enlightening lightning round. But before we do, I just want I want to make sure that if there's anything more right now you want to say about nope. the Modern Elder Academy or anything else that we get that in here. I think that's great. I think okay. we're fine. Awesome. Good. Okay. Are you ready for the enlightening yes. lightning round? <laughs> okay. Go for it. Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... A series of seasons. Okay. Number two, borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? That aging is aspirational. Mm, Okay, thank you. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Mm. Grow whole. Mm, I like that. Number four, what book other than one of your own? And I understand, Chip, you've written five now or published yes. five. Yeah. Yep. yep. That's awesome. So what book other than one of your five own books have you gifted or recommended most often? Uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. That is, by the way, the number one most common response to this question from my is guests. Is that right? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So thank you. I think, it's a, I think it's a great leadership book, but that's a whole different st- subject. Yeah, no doubt. 
Okay, let me just ask this here then, not normally part of the lightning round. What are you currently reading? I, <laughs> I'm reading uh, Michael Mead's Awakening the Soul. I, but I tend to read six or seven books at once, but I'm rereading Michael Mead's Awakening the Soul because it feels like it's a book that's relevant to the planet right now. And um, yeah, that's why I'm reading that one. I, gosh, what else? I, I, there's a book that I've read, I just reread also called The 100, the 100 Year Life by a couple of London professors. Hmm. I like that. I like that title. Uh, I, by the way, I want to live to be 200. I heard Peter Diamandis say his plan is to live to be 700. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of him. And we were at a summit event and I went, is he for real? And he was, and then he started articulating his plan to do so. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I will, I'm not that ambitious, but 200 sounds good. What, what about not, you? Peter may not have height, but he does have length. Um, yes. so, uh, <laughs> and certainly depth. I don't, you know, in terms of how long do I want to live? I don't care. I, you know what? I don't really think about it that way. I, I, I think the age that I think I'm going to live till is age 98. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about society, and this again gets back to the aging is aspirational, is if you think about what percentage of your adult life have you lived so far. And if I live till 98 and I'm 59 now, that what that means is an 80-year adulthood and I am 41 years into that 80-year adulthood, which means I've just entered the second half of my adulthood. Now, most of us don't think that way. And this is part of the reason why people don't try to learn how to surf or learn Spanish in their late 50s, because there's a sense that their fixed mindset, using Carol Dweck's work, means that they're focusing on proving themselves. And as you get older, that means you actually create a smaller and smaller sandbox because you tend to only think, do things that you think you're going to do well. Whereas when you're improving yourself, which is what a growth mindset is about, you actually tend to be focused on learning, not winning. And therefore, you try new things. And so, yeah, I think a growth mindset, which is very woven into our Modern Elder Academy curriculum, will allow you to move into a state of flow to use, a, there's a, there's a, I have something called the Wisdom Well, which is our, my daily blog that people get, get subscribed to and get for free. And I did, I did a interesting blog a week ago or so called Mahali and, and Carol's Love Child. And it basically took Mahali Csikszentmihalyi's theory of flow, put it into a graph format based upon, he's a friend of mine and he's also known as Mike. Mike showed me the graph that defines flow with challenge and skill on the two axes. And then you, you superimposed on that Carol Dweck's work about how to create a growth mindset to create a flow channel. You can actually see in a visual way and depict how do I create a life full of more of a growth mindset that allows me to enter a state of flow more often in my life, especially around things that are new. It's a wow. visual reference. It's fucking dynamite. That is really cool. And excuse the, the, the F word. Um, <laughs> but, but it's really interesting because when people can actually see the visual, they actually take an abstract concept and they actually make it real in their life. Yeah. No, there's no doubt where having an understanding of something, an awareness of a concept alone can be transformational or open up a possibility and what you're describing sounds cool. What I wonder is, is it also available online as a, like a blog post or was it only in an email that you sent to? No, no, it's online. Yeah. If you go to Wisdom Well, if you probably, it's probably just 
searchable online, but it's on the Modern Elder Academy website. At the bottom of the website is is where you go and, and it has the archive of them all. So you could actually just go there. Are you pro- I'm sure you could go just online and just look, put my name and just say Mahali, M-I-H-A-L-Y, Mahali and, and Carol's love child and it'll show up. Yeah, that's great. And I'll be sure to put that in the show notes as well and the link for anyone who wants to sign up to be sure to receive that every day. Yep. So awesome. Thank you. Okay. It's a little micro dose of wisdom. wisdom. <laughs> That's great. I'm going to ask you about that when we get to the writing section, what your process is for, for uh, mm-hmm. creating that. But yep. okay. So question number five, you have traveled a ton in your life. What's one, and of course your work has been oriented around travel and hospitality, yep. but what's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I'll just say that my favorite thing to do when I get to the place I'm going to is to go for a run, especially if it's a place where I'm going to have jet lag, if it, especially if it's during the daytime still. I want to you know, have multiple benefits out of, of going for a run near where I'm staying. I get to know the neighborhood, which is interesting. Um, I get my body after being in a plane for a long time, you know, getting some good circulation going. And, and for the sake of jet lag, it's absolutely been proven that if you, you need to stay up and be in light if, if it's daytime uh, and not just go straight to take a nap. So that's my hack. It, and it's so, so it's, not, it's not something I have to buy. It's just something I do. And then what I try to do whenever I'm feeling tired is I will meditate. I'll meditate instead of taking a nap. Now, oh, any particular form you follow? I've done all kinds of things. The one I use as sort of my fallback, especially if I'm traveling, is just TM. Mm-hmm. And you've got your mantra and everything. Yep. yep. Right on. That's great. Okay. Thank you for that. Number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing? And I realize there's many <laughs> probably, but what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I stopped being CEO of Joie de Vivre to age well. I stopped, <laughs> I stopped being full-time at Airbnb in order or in order to age well. So what I have found, and both of those were callings of mine. So I, I felt I've had to actually drop a calling, leave a calling in order to find a new one. Wow. You know, that reminds me just a few interviews ago, I interviewed the spiritual teacher, Mark Nepo. Mark is teaching here next week, next year at Modern, oh, Modern Elder serious? Academy. No way. I want to. And come. I just, I just literally two days ago, he wrote something to me to, for me to share with our Modern Elder Academy community. And it's on the Wisdom Well blog. Oh my goodness. That's so awesome. Yeah. yeah. The, and what you're sharing now about this, re, you know, releasing, letting go of these, even these callings that you've had reminds me of something he talks about, which is, you know, the root of the word sacrifice is the same root as sacred and Mm. to sacrifice something is what allows us to remain close to the pulse of life and that which is sacred Mm. and i was like that is such a beautiful perspective and it sounds like that's exactly what you've done yes i think i i I love him so yes that's great awesome okay number seven what's one thing you wish every american knew (laughs) how to get a passport (laughs) (laughs) they don't know that already Listen, no, they don't. <laughs> yeah, that that impacts you being in Mexico, doesn't it? Well, it just impacts, I think, so much in the world today in terms of how we balkanize people who are different than us. Yeah. You mean it doesn't work just to speak louder once you get to the <laughs> customs yeah. or something? No. No. Okay. Number eight, 
what is what is something you have learned about making relationships work that has served you well? You know, I'm not a huge fan of Stephen Covey's book, The um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but there are, there are a couple things in it that I really found valuable. Okay, One hold on, which, just real quick. How come you're not a fan of that? Every, doesn't everybody just love that book? No. Why not? You know, I found it, I found much of it very dry and and somewhat obvious. Mm. But I think that one of the one of the things that I really appreciated was seek to first understand. Yes. And I think that that's, you know, to answer your question, I think it's really valuable advice, especially when it's somebody who is has got a different point of view than you. Mm. Yeah, maybe maybe even especially then, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay. And coming down the stretch here, the next one is about money. So aside from compound interest, what is something important that you've learned about money or what's something that you're sure to always do or to never do with it? So I think the number one question that anybody should ask themselves is if you were, if you needed to go to therapy, relationship therapy with money, because you have a, a lifelong relationship with money, what would you say to the therapist about money and what would money say about you? <laughs> mm. um, the premise there being money, you have a relationship with money. Uh, and yet we, you're often our money relationship is somewhat unconscious and it's a script that we learned a long time ago that may not, no longer serve us. And so the question I often ask myself is, is money creating freedom in my life or is it taking it away? Wow. That, that is a deep question. That's great. Okay. Awesome. So with this last question, you will have survived the enlightening lightning round. Congratulations. Yay. And Yay. this one's a softball. If people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? <laughs> I guess, I think probably, um, I mean, certainly you could go and and look at look for me in social media or my URL of chipconley.com. Where are but you active? Think, Twitter? Yeah. Instagram? I, I'm, I'm most active on LinkedIn. Interesting. Okay. Um, Twitter a little bit, uh, Facebook a little bit. Our Modern Elder Academy Facebook group, which is a private group, which anybody can join, is a is a really great, robust group. But I think my Wisdom Well daily blog is the best way to sort of get have a pulse, my thinking, my way of framing life and understanding how to create a good life. And it's generally pretty topical. So of course, a lot of the posts right now are about the virus. And yet I also have guest bloggers like, you know, Mark Nepo who just blogged and Seth Godin and I did a eight, eight series, a series of eight back and forth uh, a couple of months ago. And so it's, uh, I think a good way for people to get uh, to know what I'm doing. That's great. Thank you for that. Okay. And as an expression of gratitude to you, I have gone on Kiva.org and I've made a hundred dollar micro loan to a 45 year old entrepreneur named Johnny who is in India, uh, wow. who will use this money. She's actually going to use this to uh, make bamboo products like baskets and chairs that she can sell to improve the quality of life in her community and for herself and her family. So thank you for giving me a reason to make that micro loan. Wow. I love that. That is yeah. really ingenious. Thank you for, yeah. for, uh, for doing that. Yeah. That's my pleasure. Okay. So the final questions here and how you doing, by the way? I'm great. Good. Okay. The last, the last uh, portion of our interview, really coming down the stretch on the interview itself, is this is a place to explore writing, creativity, perhaps even maybe marketing and promotion. 
just recognizing many people who want to write a book see the completion of a manuscript or the publication as the finish line where mm. ultimately, although that is significant, I think they're probably not as fulfilled if people don't know about it, care about it, pick it up. So what you've learned, I suspect, would be really valuable to people listening. And there's so much we could say, but we could start anywhere. But I, I am interested in your creative process for the well, the wisdom well. You said mm-hmm. that it's a daily blog. And what I love in that is that for any creative right? Like as Job said, real artistship. <laughs> and yeah. clearly you've done that by publishing five books, multiple Ted talks, you yes. have this daily blog. Will you tell us how do you organize your time and what's your creative and productive process like? Sure. I mean, I think it's so essential to know what's the right habitat and the habitat can also include time of day. I've known for a very long time that my writer wakes up before my editor And what that basically means is that my creative process is so much better early in the day because they're fresh thoughts that don't have the critical thinking editing them. And so uh, my ideal time for writing is about 4.30 in the morning till 7.30 in the morning. Holy crap. So I think I I was a monk or a farmer in a past life. Yeah, it is a holy crap. Actually, I take the holy crap first and then I start writing. Um, (laughs) So... What I do is I know that that's the time of day where I, I'm most, the thin veil between me and something bigger than me is at its thinnest. William Blake, the uh, writer long ago, said that there's certain places in life where he just takes dictation. That's sort of how it is for me. Oh, that's I, beautiful. Um, I'm taking dictation if I'm getting it right. Um, something is channeling through me. And I know that uh, meditating early in the morning helps me as well. I know that a run on the beach is a great way to help me with that, help me at any time of day to get a download. But I also know that I really like to do a lot of writing simultaneously. So if I'm going to sit down for three hours of writing in a row and I'm going to be writing Wisdom Well daily blogs, I might write four or five over that course of time, which means that I'm not having to churn out every single day, you know, a blog, but it does mean that I, I have to insert new ones. If I have something topical that needs to go in tomorrow's blog, it might just slide right in there because it's something that needs to get out there immediately because it relates to something that's happening topically in society at that particular moment. Now, when I'm writing a book, it's a different, a little different approach because I'm not, I'm not the maker who then actually has to be the producer immediately and when you're writing a book it's a it's a such a it's it's like a pregnancy for me every book i've written except for the last one last it took 9 months almost within a month of 9 months on either side 8 to 10 months this last book was wisdom at well, well took took 5 and when i say took that long i mean not from the time the moment i had the idea i mean from the moment i have gotten the idea to the place uh, I'm ready to start writing. Now that in some cases for me now, back in the early days, it meant I needed to go write it before I could sell it. Now it means I've gone out and written the proposal to a publisher with my literary agent and I've sold the book and now I've got, I've got a signed contract and now I, it gets started. So that, that process you still is very much morning driven, fresh ideas first thing in the morning But I tend to, um, as you sort of talked about it earlier, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to writing a book. My last three books, they're basically absolutely psychology meets business. All five of them are, but the last three in particular. 
So I go out and I just become a voracious reader. And so I'm reading during the day. I usually do my reading in the afternoon and the evening. I do my writing in the morning. And so I am processing through things and I'm using Google Docs like you couldn't believe such that, and in the old days, I was just had files. I'd I'd photocopy pieces of books that I just wanted to remember. And then I just put that in a file and I'd have as many as 500 files. Physical uh, files. Physical file folders for different components of the book. And so then I weave it all together ultimately. And I write all my own stuff. Um, I do have a personal editor who she comes, she comes along late in the game. Actually, she, she actually reads things along the way. And I, I actually like to write. And then once I've gotten maybe three chapters done, let's say it's a 12-chapter book, once I've gotten about a quarter of the book done, I, I like to have my editor at the publisher read it. So I will have my personal editor who is on, I, I pay you know, out of my advance, have her, you know, polish it a little bit and then it'll go to the publisher to make sure I'm on the right path. Um, because the worst thing that I, I don't know how writers write a whole book with, without, <laughs> without having their editor see any of it. I, I get the in, intent, but I would be scared along the way and I'd start, then my, then my editor kicks in in a big way. So I ra- I'd rather feel free to, to have cre- the creative freedom to keep going and I feel like I have the responsibility with the publisher to make sure that, that I'm on the right path. Yeah. Let me jump in and ask you yeah. about the editor there for a moment because yeah. I know that editing can mean a lot of things all the way from right proofreading and copy editing, line editing to the structural and conceptual editing and that kind of thing. And I know like you talk about making sure that you're on the you know, the path you want to be, but your editor comes into the process late in later in the game. What's your process for structuring the book? Like, how do you, how do you go from the concept and you're sure I want to write a book about this thing and then you form it and shape it so that when you, all that writing hangs in that framework, how do you approach that? You know, it's interesting. I, it's been fascinating to see how the structures of my books, that, that's where, I, that's actually where the editor at the publisher is helpful. And I think that's really pretty important because if your editor at the publisher doesn't like your structure, oh my God, wow, that's a big problem. Yeah. So um, it's a really, I think that's a really important first thing. And, and, and if you're doing this right with a publisher, you've given them, you know, maybe even a sample chapter or two, but, but certainly a proposed table of contents. So they understand the sort of flow of the book. And then once you've done the flow of the book, what I tend to do, and, and let's say I've gotten a signed contract now, is I will then create um, between one and four paragraphs per chapter to sort of to go into detail about what the chapter is more about. Now, in some cases, I've actually done that even in the book proposal process. And that's the key is that is like, if I think it's important that the, the publishers got that structure down. Now with my last book, interestingly enough, Wisdom at Work, Making of a Modern Elder, I sold the book to Penguin Random House and the book was called Modern Elder, but didn't have a subtitle. Four months into it, while I was already writing the book, they came back and said, it's no longer going to be called Modern Elder. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you, I saw you, And they had the rights you know, to yeah. do whatever they want there. And I was like, that's the idea. But they were really scared about all the stuff we've talked about, which is like it, people will not gravitate to it. They don't get it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why ultimately it became the subtitle. But I have so many people who say to me, you know, I've read your book, The Making of a Modern Elder. It's really good. It's like, well, that's the subtitle of the book. <laughs> but that's what um, they remember. Wisdom at Work is what it's called. But 
I also have a, two or three people who are sort of friends who are writers and muses, and I will work with them sometimes and just sort of like throw things around with them. And then in certain cases, if it's a, if it's a book that has a specialty, like a focus, like the, the book on Maslow, which is called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, uh, about Maslow's hierarchy of needs applied to organizations. I worked with some people who really are just brilliant about Maslow's work. And while I was applying it to a world that they weren't as familiar with, which was the organizational and business world, I, I really got some good advice from them about structure there because actually I was even structuring what a hierarchy of needs pyramid looked like for employees, customers, and investors. And um, so, yeah, so I, you know, the thing that I'm very proud of, I mean, there's lots of things I'm not good at, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm really proud. I've written some books that have an element of a scholarly academic element to them. They're, they're well read. Usually I read, you know, on average about a hundred books in preparation for writing a book. And I have yet in these last three books to have anybody or any of my five books ever, anybody from the academic world take me to task and say, you know, you, you, uh, misconstrued. Yeah. yeah. Or you poser, you like, you've come along and like, I spent my life, you know, studying, you know, Maslow or Victor Frankel or, Carl Jung or a bunch of other people or, or gerontology yeah. and here you come along as the, the interloper and I've never had that experience and and truly I, you know the academic world can be pretty petty about that kind of stuff um, yeah. and so I'm proud of that and I think what it does say is that uh, I do research the subjects pretty deeply. Yeah well and that you know clearly that shines through and that's one thing I think that works so well about your writing. And it did for me, particularly in this book, Wisdom at Work, where it's, I found it such a fantastic blend of science and the academic, you know, research, as well as stories, you know, from yeah. people that, you know, personally, people you've worked with, people that you know of, and then your own experience. And so it's very readable. It's very engaging. And that's one thing I want to ask about is what was your process like for knowing, I mean, because if you have this big picture of what the book is, and then you're out researching and collecting and even writing a story, and you've got hundreds of these, I would think, how do you know where they're all going to fit? Did you tag them? Did you use sticky notes? Like, how did you approach and organize all that? Yeah. I mean, I've done sticky notes before. I, yeah, for some reason, that doesn't work as much for me. I What I used to do is I would, um, again, I'd have this file folder and there'd be 500 of them, and I'd have maybe 15 chapters in the book, that particular book. And so I'd take the 500 file folders and turn them into, you know, 30 file folders per chapter, the themes in the chapter. And then I'd literally, you know, stack the folders in the right order. And that's how I'd do it. Um, but that, but then there was the process of writing it and then actually polishing it and feeling like, okay, there's got to be a right, the right kind of flow. You know, I, I actually, interestingly, on my, the last book, one of my chapters, the longest chapter in my book, chapter eight, was way, way too long. It was 46 pages long. And my, I don't like chapters that are more than 20 pages long. And I, I, I love a, you know, a 12-page, 15-page chapter if possible. Um, you know, but generally, my, my chapters tend to be, you know, closer to 20. Um, this is 46 pages long. And uh, with, with my editor... Uh, and that was after the edit with my personal editor with the editor at the publisher they got it down to 40 but at the last minute 
I just went in and just said, no, I can't do this. 40 pages is too long. So I, I don't remember what it got down to, but I think it got down to 34 pages, to 32 pages. And I, I just slashed stuff at the last minute. And it, it is really hard to slash stuff if you're, a pub, if you're a writer who has labored over the process as much oh, as yeah. I do to get to that place. If, you know, and, and you think you have some gems there and you have information that won't be in the light of day. And, you know, so ultimately with the last book, with Wisdom at Work, I ended up having a, an appendix where I put some of, some of the stuff and it was, sometimes it was, it was not in long passages, but it was links and things like that to things that I thought were pretty irrelevant, relevant to the book overall. And in some cases they were just pieces of beautiful wisdom and prose that I wanted to quote of somebody that was, you know, you know, 200 words of prose that I felt like I I don't have the space to do 200 words of prose and I want to put it in the, in the appendix. Yeah, that's va- that's so valuable. And at first, I thought you were going to say forty six pages, no problem, two chapters, <laughs> but not that. That was a possibility, but it was yeah. it was thematically hard. That's what my actually that's what my um, my editor at the publisher said, and I just said no. It's, thematically, this is one chapter; it just needs to be ultimately. So when I ultimately went from about let's say forty six to thirty four pages mm. or thirty two pages. Uh, so that was a pretty stre- major streamlining after my personal editor had gotten it to forty six. Yeah. I love what you did with putting all that in the appendix because, you know, I know I found it valuable and I suspect many others have as well. And it, it brings to mind something I've heard Maria Popova of Brain Picking say that literature was the original internet, <laughs> you know, and you're providing these links to other thinkers and resources. So that's valuable. Okay, cool. Well, I've pushed us to our time here. If I may just end with two questions. One is about yes. promotion. What have you learned about marketing and promoting books? that has served you well, that might also serve people listening? I think the, the thing that people need to know about marketing and selling books is that it is very different than it used to be. Getting a, you know, a mention in Time Magazine doesn't matter anymore, really. Being on Tim Ferriss matters a lot, Tim Ferriss's podcast. So know that the more digital the format and the more y- your link or your name is a link, the more likely people are going to buy in the moment. And so whether that's in the podcast or in the blogger sphere, it means you know doing marketing to people who specialize in your area, in the subject of your book, who may become your champions to their communities. And and sometimes it's going to be small small operators, small podcasters, small bloggers. And I mean, if you're somebody who doesn't have a huge history and you're trying to get started. You know, I I wouldn't I wouldn't just say okay I want to get on Tim Ferriss like good luck you also want yeah. to be on the TED sta- the big TED stage which, which you have not, done both of easy. those by the way it's worth yeah. just calling out I know you're humble on that but you've been yeah 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 I have but I mean like wow God it doesn't happen easily and I've done both twice now and yeah. so there's it's an interesting thing it's it, it's not something that's you know I think disappointment equals expectations minus reality don't don't have the expectation of that yeah um. I, the other thought I have is just build your own community, build your own, you know, plat- they call it platform. And, and, and it's really usually through social media um, or through an email mailing list. You know, these are the people who are, you know, your, your, your greatest fans and people who really care about you and they're more likely to buy your book. Yeah, it makes sense. And I know the whole discussion about how to build a platform could be its own interview. So clearly we won't get into that now. But thanks for affirming, you know, what people probably know, but maybe don't want to 
admit. Yeah. And I'll just say, I was fortunate to have a conversation with Ryan Holiday about the manuscript. I love Ryan. Yeah, he's yeah. amazing. And and I asked him if he'd help me get my book done and out. And he just said, Brian, build your platform, then come back and talk to me. Again. Mm. <laughs> so what you're saying, it certainly resonates with me. And for people listening, if you're serious about serving people, you know, extending your reach and impact, this platform thing is a real thing. So thank you for that. Okay. Final thing is what are the final words that you want to leave our listeners with? I think the, the wisdom I'd like to leave is the fact that you have a lot more life ahead of you than you think you have, and you have a lot more change ahead of you than you think you have. Uh, there's a pretty famous TED Talk um, by, I believe it's Dan Gilbert, um, that uh, showed that for every single age cohort from age 20 to 80, people uh, mistakenly underestimated how much change they have ahead of them in the next 10 years. So in essence, everybody thinks that they are in a solid state of where they are today and that change is not coming. And this is true at every age level. So just know change is happening. Uh, learn what the word liminal means, which means that you're in between two things. It's a place of uh, when you feel awkward. But of course, if you talk about the caterpillar to butterfly journey, the liminal stage of being in the cocoon is just before the beauty arises. Mm -hmm. That is so fantastic. And by the way, the video you have in your TED Talk uh, of the butterfly transforming is really <laughs> thank gorgeous. Thank you very much. So, all right. Well, thank you for that. And thank you to everyone listening. I hope that you, if you haven't already acquainted yourself with Chip's work, that you do so. And maybe I will see you in Baja at the Modern Elder Academy. Until next time, take care, everybody. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.